You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. You are listening to the very first episode of Speaking of Racism, so I'm excited about that, but I'm even more excited about my guest today. My guest is Noah Lomax, and he is the inspiration behind me even starting a podcast where we talk about race and racism in the country. So when I found out that he wanted to come on the podcast and be a part of this conversation, I was ridiculously excited about it. Today's conversation, we're going to get to know Noah a little bit. We're going to find out what it was like growing up and living in Chicago, what inspired him to get more involved in anti-racism work. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter, schooling, all sorts of good stuff. But we're also going to talk about this situation in New Jersey with the wrestler Andrew Johnson, who was forced to either forfeit a game or cut his dreads. So stay tuned. We've got a great show for you guys. I'm so excited you're here, and I hope you enjoy. All right. So today I am welcoming my friend Noah Lomax. He is actually the reason that I even started this podcast. So welcome, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Now, we met online through Facebook. And, you know, for everybody who hates social media, I would say that if we use the platform well, we can do some really great things with it. What's your experience with social media or your opinion in general about social media these days? I think social media um, typically is great for the world in a sense that it's connecting people who would have no other ways of connection outside of you know their states, their cities, their suburbs, their normal surroundings to communicate with others. It's an amazing tool to make the world smaller. Uh, so I echo those sentiments about it, that it is, is great in that aspect. I do know that it has damage that can come from it. Uh, most people meeting up who should know, or most people getting together to conspire and things of that nature. But for the most part, in using it the way I do for what it's worth, it is one of the greatest tools uh, to humanity right now. Yeah. And I mean, I really feel that. It's interesting since I started the podcast like six months ago, I've met and been connected with seven different people who want to come on and have conversations. And so to have connected with them on social media when social media gets such a bad rap and then to be able to call in and phone in from all over the country or potentially even the world is to me just an amazing thing. Truly. So I love that about social media. When did you start really getting involved in anti-racism work? My first jab at it, I believe, was uh, me, I guess, trying to actually become more political. And that was 2015, um, okay. which I think is right around the time that Black Lives Matter started to up the ante on what was going on with Blacks and, and the police. 
uh, policing issues that started to just befall America hit after hit after hit. What ended up happening was I helped out an organization here in Chicago is called the People's Lobby. And inside of the People's Lobby, what they try to do is get people to understand how great your vote is, where does your vote go, what really happens in the government in America um, from local to to the higher end of the spectrum of who you're going to vote for. And in this organization where people of every race, every religion, every walk of life, every color that you could imagine. And in this meeting, they actually were the people more focused on Black Lives Matter than the outside of uh, Chicago, anyone that was not uh, inside. Which was ironic to me because most people who marched for Black Lives Matter were just people who would show up, but not people who would orchestrate what was going to happen with that particular march is what I started to see. So I saw the duality of uh, people just picking up a T-shirt or a, a flyer and just marching with it compared to the tens of twenties of people who would have discussion after discussion on what we can do to make it safe before we go out into the street to advocate for change. Um, so when I saw that duality, uh, that's when I decided, decided that it was time for me to actually take a stand on something. Um, and in my case, I'll always be black. So, um, I, I wanted to speak for all of the issues that are near and dear to me, but near and dear to people in my family and people I've heard speak about what they've gone through of the same hue, uh, just to make sure that this country hears us, but that's when it started. Um, it was roughly about December 2015 for me. Okay. And so with regard to Black Lives Matters, you know, and that's something that you and I on uh, social media platforms have spent some amount of time like speaking to, there tends to be this idea that Black Lives Matter is a movement that is violent that is um, anti-government, anti-police, you know, and there are all of these popular ideas about BLM. So can you speak to that? Certainly. In the mindset of most people, it is no different than the civil rights movement um, mm -hmm. in, in a sense of why they believe it, it, it's violent, why they believe it's just rhetoric, why they believe we're talking about something that we shouldn't talk about. The idea of Black Lives Matter is no different than any other life. And I know we've spoken this into the ground. It's no different than saying, hey, there's someone's house that's on fire in the neighborhood. Well, the rebuttal to that for most people how they rebut Black Lives Matter is, well, my house isn't on fire. So that means that no houses on this block should be on fire. Um, I'm just going to take it from my own view. Maybe the windows in my house are tinted so dark that I can't see anything outside of where I'm at and I'm okay in this comfort zone. So don't tell me about the house that's down the street burning because it's not mine. When it, when it comes to the violence of it, they believe that even the march that Dr. Martin Luther King did, even though it was nonviolent, was violent to how people thought about the race relations between blacks and whites during even that time. So nothing, it's nothing new. It's just literally being mirrored. They believe that Black Lives Matter, based on this one incident in Texas, which we don't have all the facts upon, to say, well, mm -hmm. if one person was shooting at police, then that means that all Black Lives Matter uh, associates or affiliates are going to start anting up guns for themselves and going after police as well. They believe that that's like the Black Panther Party. 
which they, you know, didn't like the Black Panther Party either. So whether it was nonviolent of Dr. Martin Luther King or just to to hold down your Second Amendment right of the Black Panthers, somehow, some way, it's been misconstrued to believe that we're going to take up arms and become pretty much how the KKK has ran this country, which is to lambast people of different hues to make sure that they don't get anything for themselves to scare them so that they can stay in their place. I believe the underlying sentiment is that Black Lives Matter is going to do that to white people, or that's how most white people feel, but that's not true. We're literally just saying, in the sense of this country, since we've all lived here for hundreds of years, even though it's still a, a, a young country, we're no different than anyone else. We're not saying that we're better than anyone else. We're not saying that genetically we're better. We're not saying pridefully we're better. We're not saying we have a better culture than the rest of Americans that live here. All we're saying is, in the sense of what's going on with police and with Black people, considering all of the years that Black people have been in America to compound it from slavery to now, and from how police have been treating Blacks based on that same system, there has to be something better for us so that we can have a talk at least, because we, we've talked um, about what's happening with Black people in this country. And Black Lives Matter only got its foundings after so many uh, police instances of Black, unarmed Black citizens being, having their lives being taken by cops. That's all. And we should matter. Like, it's not, we're not saying we're going to rewrite civil rights. We're not saying that we want to reconstruct America from how it's, how it's been. We're not saying any of the uh, aforementioned. We're literally saying that we matter. That's it. We don't want more. We don't want less. We don't want to change the society at large. We just want to matter. Right. Well, and, and there's, um, I mean, there are so many directions we could go with this because, you know, one, one sticking point for me is data. I think data is a really helpful and really important tool in these conversations. Let's look at police brutality against people of color. Let's talk about, you know, what is the statistical truth in this? Because so often, like, you'll see these people using statistics to discredit BLM by, you know, saying, well, actually, statistically speaking, more white people are killed by the police, but they're not taking into account the fact that that has to do with population. So percentage of population, hands down, people of color are disproportionately affected in this way, right? But where you, you know, we see this manipulation in the media and by people who, you know, some know darn well what they're doing. And then some who are just like ignorantly taking up whatever they heard from somebody, you know, somewhere and putting it forward. But I think it's important to discuss the numbers behind it. Yes. Yes, it is. But I do know the sentiment uh, of the arguments that still, even with data, goes against the right. principle of what Black Lives Matter is just literally trying to say. Um, and for those people, like you said, that I don't think there's anything else we could say or do. It's it's pretty much cognitive dissonance at that point where there's nothing we can say to filter through the insurmountable ignorance that one would have to have in order to say you feel justified in your own beliefs, but then secondly, you negate actual data as proof to what someone is saying. Right. So we're not taking it from a standpoint of 
how one feels, uh, but it's not the subjective feeling. It's it's to be objective, and that that is still one of the biggest gripes of fighting for Black Lives Matter to this day. Is that you know even when we come objectively, we're still not heard. Right. The thing that I find revealing, I'll say, is that you know a lot of people will talk about gun control and gun rights and when people bring up the the stats about you know like the US is the most uh, violent with gun deaths and all of these things you know people are really quick to say right but if you compare the US to France based on population the percentages are actually worse in France than they are in the US and so it but they're not willing to take that same data with police brutality against people of color and that is revealing right Yes. And I think, like you said, this cognitive dissonance is a challenge. Like, what do you do with that? How do you know where to invest your energy and get involved and then where to just stop? Good question. Normally, when I'm having a discussion, I'll take um, our, our mutual friend uh, Charles's page for the example. There yes. are a lot of people on his page that would otherwise be against anything Black Lives Matter. I mean, you you say the word black as in just the color itself, and they'll, you know, jump down Charles's throat on his page. You know, they believe wow. he posts too much about black people. He posts too much about race in America. He posts too much about this or that. But overall, if their message is always the same, even when he posts data and he takes himself completely out of it, he'll just drop data just to have a discussion and you'll have people that'll go against the data itself with an outrage of ignorance that I've I've seen before, and that is where I draw the line. There's nothing else I can tell you or show you. You have your mind so set against race and that, you know, even without calling someone a racist, just you have your mind set against um data so hard that there's nothing anyone can share with you at this point. These are not findings by black people. You know, these are findings right. by our government. These are findings by someone who took uh, uh, an interest in this sociologist, for that example. And you want to say that that's skewed. You want to say that that's not the truth uh, instead of just listening. That's a hard conversation to have. And that's where my energy would be spent the least. Uh, I spend my energy more in those who may have a a slight ignorance but it's because of where they lived or who they talk to, how their family structure is. And I get how cultures can make someone oblivious to what's around them. I totally get that because that even happens inside of the black culture. At the same time, if they're willing to have like pretty much on your page at this point, I think we had a deep discussion with one of your friends. Um, and that's when I brought up how Martin Luther King was treated and how the the Black Panthers were treated in, in, in that juncture because this person needed a little bit of factuation, uh, that's what I like to call it, in order to get this conversation started. I I jump into conversations with mostly data first. And then after that, if they can can if they can see the data for what it is, then I'll take that as okay, well now we can we, we got the data out the way. Now we can deal human to human. Because now you see that data has showed you um something that's truthful. And if you can take that as truth, then I can talk to you as a human being and let you know my experiences. And therefore, you can take that as truth as well, because now my experiences are a part of that data that you just so happy to have been uh, privileged to, 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 to discuss. So now I can tell you everything else. And I spend a lot of time there 
Because when, when you touch, when you bring data down and then you get back to humanity and someone can see you as human, you can talk forever. You can win a friend. You, you can change policies. You, you can you can shape a community. You can help children at, at that point because now it's like the, the doors and the windows are open. There's only up to go. Yeah. And that is so powerful because like I sit here and I think about this from my perspective, you know, and my perspective is a white woman who grew up in these predominantly white spaces who was totally oblivious to so much. And so when I started getting involved in and learning and using my voice and getting active in anti-racism work, it's like, I'm still looking at things and trying to figure out like, what is my role, you know, and how do I step into this? And then to partner with friends of color in this as well, and to talk to them about, you know, like their role and, and, and to see the differences in that. It's poignant, but it's also really frustrating to me as well, because, you know, like I want your story and just who you are as a person to lead. But time and time again, the things that people of color are communicating to me that that you learn is that you can't lead with your story. It's like your story isn't enough. That is true. We cannot. And that is so dehumanizing, right? And so like my friend Cedric, who was on the podcast, um, he is a huge history buff. And he was telling me how there was a period of time where, and like for him, he's grown up in predominantly white spaces all of his life. But he was talking about how, you know, he used to lead with his story and he used to think that sharing how he got pulled over and all of these different things, that that was enough. But he started learning that like the pain that he would endure speaking those things to people's doubt and questioning, you know, uh, he just he's like, I'm done. I'm going to lead now with history. And it sounds like for you, your 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 test for people is I'm going to give you data. And if you can accept data, then maybe you can accept my humanity. Precisely. And your friend could not, you know, have been more to 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 my point than than I could have been. It it's hard, hard to get humanity listened to first, and it's just not even a black thing. Like it, and I know that's that's our discussion currently, but it's hard to get you know for people to listen to children when they say they're molested. It's hard for people to speak to the elders right. when they're going through things inside of a an elder home. Uh, you know, they're being mm-hmm. touched on or or messed with or stolen from by the nurses and doctors in these areas. It's it's hard for humans to just say, hey, let me hear you. Because if the Germans could do it with the Jewish and have that conversation even in, in their kindergartens, how come we can't have it in America? But definitely as your friend can attest to and as I can attest to, it is hard to get people to deal with humanity first. So you you have to build this wall. With me, it's data. With him, it's history. With others, it could be mm-hmm. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter. That's the wall first. And, 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 um, it, yeah. and for others, it may even, it might not even be on data. It may be subjective, but still like, you know, that's an overruling of hurt that makes them go there first before they go to them own selves. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's the hardest thing in America, I believe, that keeps us from, from being okay with each other. Yeah. So let me ask you, like, where have you lived your life? Where do you come from? I come from, uh, so I'm a foster kid. I grew up first in what's considered one of the lower tiers of 
poverty and um, I guess you would say uh, housing projects. It was uh, Cabrini Green here in Chicago, Illinois, uh, which yeah. is known globally. But by the age of five, I was forced into foster care. I lived in Highland Park, Illinois for a stint, which was like a, a great northern suburb of Chicago where there's huge uh, arrays of color across the board. Now, I don't know if there was racism at the time because I was young. I was six. But I did remember seeing white people, possibly in my mind for the first time, outside of looking at um, my childhood show, uh, Sesame Street. You know, Sesame Street shows your differences. But when you don't live in those differences, you don't see them to that degree. So, yes, this is my first time seeing white people and Latino people and Asian people. And I mean, across the board, in my mind, this was like another world to me because I got so used to being around just black people. Um, right. And then I was moved to another home. Well, well, first, let me go back. This suburb that I stayed in was with a black family. And though predominantly I was with black families uh, in my foster care, um, that that's all I knew and, and could attest to. This was the first time I'd ever seen a difference in humanity. And that's when I started to understand humanity a bit differently. It wasn't until I lived in my last foster home that I saw the differences in how police treated Black people as compared to any other race of people that I had seen before as well. And that was my first start with police. Actually, we uh, at this, I was maybe nine, nine, ten, and we were just playing basketball in the alley, thinking nothing of it, you know, just what teenagers, uh, preteens and teenagers do. Had a... Um, a crate affixed to a telephone pole so that the ball can go inside. And, you know, that's, that's what we do. We all wanted to be Michael Jordan since the Bulls were winning in the 90s. Uh, so <laughs> squad car rolled up on us um, and, you know, they pretty much frisked us, had us place our hands on the squad car. I had no idea what any of this was called, you know, during this time. I thought police did this to everybody. I thought police investigated to this degree across America. I had no idea this was just us because we had no weapons. We had probably the loosest fitting clothes that you can wear because we were all super skinny. So it wasn't like we had any any weapons on us that you couldn't see. You know, like our shirts were loose, mm-hmm. our shorts were loose. No one had pants. No one had uh, uh, any, you know, hoodies or, you know, anything that made us look criminal. This was the dead of summer. So it was hot outside, shorts and a T-shirt. But um, I was saying all that to say like how I grew up. Uh, to get back onto your your point, I grew up uh, predominantly in black neighborhoods, uh, but in high school we had a we had a day where you get to exchange high schools with another high school that was that was um, participating. And for us, I went to Dunbar, which is a historically black high school, and we participated with Naperville High, which is a high school that has super rich people of all colors. Now, of course, the majority were white, but you had your Asians, you had your black students, you had your biracial students. And I didn't notice at the time, uh, but none of us did, that there was this atmosphere outside of Chicago that showed Chicago just how horrible Chicago was. And that was based on this high school. It was kind of like a microcosm of everything outside of Chicago to me, which was like it was when I was in foster care in uh, Highland Park, Illinois. So we, we exchanged with this high school where they they would bus maybe 20 of us to this high school and we would sit with students that would choose us throughout the day. So we get to interact in whatever classes they went to and we get to see how it was for them. I interchange with 
I totally forget her name, but it was an Asian uh, woman. She'd be a woman now. And uh, I went to all of her classes. Now, the thing about the differences was that we went to her first class, which was French. And in their high school, they take French all four years. You choose a, a language, you learn it, you master it before you graduate. And I knew that because this was her second, her sophomore year, her second year in high school. And what was crazy to me was that first, the classroom was carpeted. We only had, you know, those kind of almost metallic floors. Uh, they weren't literally metallic, but just they shine so much with linoleum that, you know, you just, you just knew like, okay, well, someone's going to sweep and mop this floor, but they had carpet. That, to my mind, that someone had to vacuum that carpet, it, 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 that showed the difference in how they thought it was more homely looking than it was to look like, okay, you're in school for this amount of time. Don't think about the floors. You'll be out. Um, but no. So in her class, they spoke only French. The professor did not speak anything of English when they walked in, nor of English when they walked out. And everyone in the class was asked to speak French only as well. Um, so that was one thing. And then we went to her archery class, which was held outside with bow and arrows. I'd never been a part of that. We went to her, um, lunch period, which they had maybe four or five different restaurant-esque foods that they were given outside of just tater tots and fries, like in our high school or, uh, corn or, you know, whatever you didn't want because the food did not look edible. They had an array of vegetables and an array of fruits and, uh, we we looked at each other. Those I had uh, come with who were having lunch with uh, one of their uh, persons that were showing them around how much of a difference it was. And that was the talk on the school bus going back to 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 class that, man, we we didn't we didn't have it like we thought we had it. We thought we had enough books. We thought we had teachers that cared. We thought we had a system that will work that once we graduated high school, we'd be prepared for college. We'd be prepared for uh, obtaining a skill, you know, if we didn't want to go directly to college. None of that was true. And we had been been uh, given a glimpse of the world, pretty much. When you're in these uh, areas of predominantly Black spaces and you don't see the rest of the world for what it is, you believe that in these spaces, that's enough. And it's, it's such a lie. We didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about redlining. I didn't know anything about segregation to that degree in high school. Um, I, you know, we went over our normal Black History Month, uh, top 10 people, but we went no further. We didn't investigate why this school was the way it is compared to Naperville High. None of that came up. And, but what that showed me is that how I lived and where I live was not enough. And then I got to college. And then that was um, a tremendous gravity pull as well. I went to a historically black college, Southern University, but then right down the street was LSU, a predominantly white institution, which had twice or probably five times the amount of students we had. They had a, a, a way better football field and a way better football team led by a way better coach, uh, way better um, educational uh, classes to take so that you like if you wanted to take something that would get you to France instantly or to China, they had uh, Chinese as an elective in a language. You could do that. You can escape America, if you will, and, and learn more than what our college was giving us at a point. But the glory to my college was that they sent me to California. I had an internship in California where I got to live for four months um, in the most northern part of California. And then this is when I started to see 
America in a different light in California, which is ironic because school is in Louisiana, which is the South. So I would have thought maybe I'd get more racism in the South than I would in Chicago. But no, there was more racism in California. Um, My living in California was great for me. It was an opportunity that I credit to this day. You know, God did a good job of making sure these people got into my life to show me another part of the world. I lived in what's considered uh, Redding, California, but it was called Whiskey Town due to the fact that they had a small creek and um, someone was driving whiskey through and the the barrel slipped off from the the cart uh, and landed into their water supply. And it, of course, changed it to whiskey. So they called it Whiskey Town. And I remember working with the, the government for what was called GPS and GIS tracking. But there was a guy who took me under his wing that I worked with because he knew I, I love computers. I love to fix and work with IT. So he would take me to and from to make sure that, you know, we had jobs where it, he would show me how to build computers, how to manipulate them the way I wanted. And we stopped one time in this park. I don't know where this park was. I couldn't draw it on a map for you if, if I tried. But in this park, he told me to be careful. And this was my first time looking at him. He was he was a white gentleman, but you know, I didn't play the this should be that role in California because California is open. At least in my mind, I'm thinking that's the way it is, but not in North California. Southern California, sure. And he took us to a party and said, Nora, be careful. And and I instantly kind of chalked up in fear because I'm like, if he's telling me to be careful, we must not be around the right people right now. And sure enough, we weren't. There were people who had um, these kind of lightning bolts as tattoos etched on their arms, on their shoulders, on some part of their body, letting it all hang out. Either you saw them through their T-shirts or you saw them because they were wearing kind of uh, loose clothing or maybe no shirts at all. And he said, if you see those tattoos, that means that those people are not for you. And for him to tell me that as a white man in in an area where he didn't have to tell me or to, to my ignorance... Something could have happened to me, but when he told me, I stayed back from the rest of the party from from that day forward because I started to see the tattoos and I started to see how people were looking at me. And I I, I was the only black person at this in particular junction, which it didn't matter to me at first because I don't look at myself like, okay, now I need to see my color first amongst a lot of white people until someone give uh, until he gave me the reason to be cautious around this many white people, and that to me was what started me on a path to wanting to understand why race mattered in America. That was the initial start, but I didn't get into it, of course, politically until 2015, but that was 2004. And uh, I had a huge talk with my mother when I came back from California that day, because um, I had no idea. I had no idea. And she worried about me going South. And I told her like, yeah, I'll be just fine. Not to the ignorance of I, I didn't understand what racism was, but because I would be just on that school's campus. I, mean, I didn't go off campus that much unless we were going you know, somewhere fun with, with friends. But we weren't subjected to that where you could see, you know, the I, I forget what these two lightning bolts stand for. But it's it's pretty much with, with someone who likes swastikas, but they don't put swastikas on themselves, someone who may like white nationalism, but they don't scream it out. They have the tattoo form. These were those people. So I was around people who were hell bent on not liking anyone of color. That's scary. That is scary. That, that by far is probably the scariest thing I've had happen to me in my life without it actually happening. Had he not told me 
I wouldn't know. You know, that because, of course, we look for people with swastikas. We look for people who wear uh, KKK robes and hoods. We look for that stuff to consider someone racist, but that's not always a telltale sign. It could be someone that sit, sits next to me at work without me seeing their tattoos because, of course, they have to wear the blue collar or the, the collared shirts. I can't see their tattoos. So now it's not just on what you put on yourself. It's your mindset. And that is what is to me, it's what's hard to get people to understand that it's it's not it's not because people can manipulate um, changes in government or policies that would put me in jail. It's not that people have this push off of, oh, well, I can't be racist because this person down the street is because they're bigoted and they've said things to black people that black people shouldn't listen to. No, it's it's way beyond that at this point. It's it's a mindset. It's how you are. It's how you practice what you truly believe. And that is even scarier than me seeing the people with the tattoos, because at least the people with the tattoos were open and honest about theirs. All of these different areas in life led me right back to being who I am today. It, it's a small world, but when you grow up and you see so many changes to humanity you don't want it to be granted i i would love for us to have a utopia but i know that's never going to be the case not in our lifetimes at least it may happen with the millennials and it may happen after the millennials but i i love the fact that this conversation can be had with someone who who understands i'll put that out there as well and i believe that guy understood even though we didn't have a discussion as you and i are having he understood the dynamics of race enough to to to, to warn me, and and to this day you know, I totally forgot that guy's name because it was so long ago. But I thank him for his his truth in that matter. Um, that you know that ha that has me thinking now that uh, change can happen, but it's not happening fast enough. Yeah. So here we are being able to have this conversation. How often do you have conversations like this? I do not have the discussions that we have on social media or interwoven in my life each day. I do not have those. So I guess that's to your point earlier when we first started off, why social media is needed. It keeps people mm -hmm. communicating. It, it, it helps us have these discussions that aren't had uh, with a family or in a family setting, such as like at a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner when families get together the most. Um, for us to have these discussions outside of, uh, the, the, the family norm is helpful. I do believe that these discussions should be had offline, but, but they don't. And so with us having them the way we have them on social media, this, this actually helps me. It helps me focus. It helps me understand where a mindset may be that I can reach out in a different way. Maybe, you know, someone may be that person where I don't have to use data. You, for example, I didn't have to use data to show my humanity, mm -hmm. you, you got it. And I think that's the key element of social media is finding someone who gets it, you know, like the, yeah. like maybe you, 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 you worked out for maybe a, a week or so, or maybe a month. And then you go get that massage, that release of pressure off of your shoulders, that, that heavy sigh that comes along with that. That's what you represent. Or, you know, you, you've been worrying, you've been, uh, pacing back and forth because your your kid said he or she was was going to be at the park, but they're not home now. And 
you've, you've already called the police and the police said that there's nothing they can do until the you know child's missing 24 hours or so. And then the child walks into the house un, unscathed, unhurt. Nothing happened to him. They probably stopped by a friend's house and fell asleep on the way home, but then came home. The, the parents dropped him off. And that, that breath of fresh air, you get like, oh, my son, my yeah. daughter, home. You know, you, you feel better. When, when we hit on humanity, when you don't have to present data or for somebody else, when they don't have to hide their blackness or they, they don't have to hide their Native Americanness or their Asianness or their Latinoness, you, you feel so much better. You, you, you've lifted the spirit of that person because for in, in mm-hmm. most instances, when you're not given that freedom to have a, any discussion, B, to have a discussion about yourself. It's it's a it's a breath of fresh air when you get to have it with somebody that truly understands, and then that helps your fight uh, stay active. That helps you keep a sense of of this is bigger than me uh, on the path, and you don't have to hide behind the color. You don't have to hide behind your words. You can live your truth, and you can live it with someone that you consider a friend. Now it's time for a new segment on the show called Speaking of Racism. Speaking of racism, we have a host of ideas and rules built on those ideas about proper clean-cut hair in this country. So from schools all the way to corporate America, we have these rules and regulations in place that tell us and tell others what it means to be clean-cut and proper. The problem is this perspective is set by the majority culture and the majority culture's understanding of hair. Recently, we had a situation in New Jersey where a young high school wrestling athlete was forced to make the decision between forfeiting a game or cutting his hair. He decided that he would rather have his hair cut than forfeit the game. And many of us watched in horror as this young man's hair was cut from his head. Since then, a national conversation has ensued. And it started out with a very hot exchange on Twitter by a sportscaster by the name of Mike Frankel, who initially got on to praise the young man and say he did such an amazing job by putting his team and the game ahead of his own hair. Mr. Frankel quickly learned from Twitter school that his perspective was a little off. And so in this clip, Noah and I dive into that conversation. I mean, he may have black friends. He may have friends with locks. But in having Mm -hmm. friends with locks and having black friends, that does not give you the understanding of black culture unless you want Mm -hmm. to seek after that. That's something that you're doing, but that's something he didn't do. And that lack of understanding would make him believe that, oh, you know, it's to, to this black teen, oh, it's just hair. I'm, I'm going to cut it and win for our school, you know, just to hoard around this trophy and have the accolades of, of, of my peers. No, that's, that's not what it is at all. Like the culture of having your hair locked uh, in the first place is one that's significant to that person that's going through that process because it is a long process. Your hair just doesn't do that overnight. That takes years mm-hmm. for it to to lock and then to grow that long. You have to get it relocked. You have to get it washed. You have to get it twisted. You, you know, some loctician is going to spend two to three hours on your head just to make sure that you're presentable. But still, the racism behind that is that 
in in uh, mainstream America, in the Fortune 500 companies, locks were not something that you could walk in there with, and that's natural hair growth. So the stigma of black hair, like this um, referee went and and tried to broadcast to everybody, is that it's not it's not acceptable in a lot of places, and on the wrestling floor, it's not. Though you're just a wrestler, and it has absolutely nothing to do with your hair. This team will forever have this uh, on his permanent record. Like this is all over social media. His life at this age, I don't know if he's 16 or 18, this is going to be a, a yeah. telltale moment for him no matter what job he goes to in the future. They're going to ask him questions about that. Now, it may be learning experiences when they ask him, but he's going to be known as that kid, Andrew Johnson of Buena High School. You are, your hair rather, is what has you mystified by the rest of the world. And this referee has had an issue with another referee who was African-American. They had an uh, argument over homemade wine. And this referee ended up calling that black referee the N-word. And that mm. made them fight. They fought amongst each other. They both were expelled for a bit, but he was brought back. And for him to do this again. But the, the ruling is, if you have hair that's longer than, that's like towards where a collar would be on your neck if you were a collar shirt, or if it spills out the sides and goes over your ears, or if by the front it's long enough and covers your eyebrows, you have to wear a cap. And he wore a cap. Mm -hmm. But this referee still on himself said, that's not enough. You have to cut that hair off. So mm -hmm. that's like telling, in, in a sense of locks, it's like telling a Native American, take off your your the, the feathers that's symbolic of your tribe and of your people Take all of that off. Take off your headrest. Take off your your native attire or anyone that still practices the the native traditions of their land, of their culture, of their people. You're telling them to stop that. So now you're you're not okay with their humanity. You're not okay with their culture. You're not okay with their race. You're not okay with that person in general. So that's racism. That's a clear cut example mm -hmm. of it. You can't twist that any other way. For this referee who knew the rules to take a rule and justify it upon himself to say you're not even meeting the standards of that rule which he was it just has to cover your uh you have to wear a cap if you don't want to cut your hair that's okay they gave that rule for that this is they wouldn't stop someone uh who's of uh the islamic faith from wearing their hair dress because of their religion so you make this guy cut his hair just because you felt that yeah and he has to obey the my rules. He has to be subjected to my rules in order for him to wrestle. But you're just a referee. You're not the rule holder. This, this is these are the practices. It's just like almost like what he did was like calling the cops on someone that's black, because now you're not obeying these laws that I have envisioned for this neighborhood. You oppose them the moment you step foot inside this neighborhood, regardless of what you want to do or who you're visiting. You're black in my neighborhood. I'm going to call the cops. This is how I justify that you shouldn't be here. This is how I justify you shouldn't wrestle. You're locks. Even though you got them covered up, which is which is by the rule, I still want to manipulate how that ruling is set. So abide to me. Well, and it's interesting, too, because for me as, you know, a white woman, I wasn't very familiar with locks at all. And over the years, I've learned. And one of the things that I would really like 
more spotlight on in particular are these policies of schools that are preventing kids from going if they have locks because of hair length rules. I'm hoping for some big change on this by bringing awareness to the fact that, you know, we have this majority white culture perspective when it comes to hair to understand that there are these systems in place by people who have absolutely no idea half the time it's still racism you know these are still racist policies and so um you know like this kid i just like watching that video I was so angry. I can't even imagine what other people were feeling when they were watching this, like if they have locks or if their kids do, or I have a number of friends with them. It just, that was so heartbreaking and so infuriating to see. And then, you know, you're going to get the people who come online and say, well, the rules are the rules and there's hair length rules and there are these rules. And it's like, they just don't even understand that it's based on a concept of majority culture and white hair, you know? Exactly. Like you said, everyone that sat around and did nothing, no one, you know, said like, hey, let's let's make sure we speak to the the system that allowed this rule to go on. Let's really go ahead and, and address this with them first before we do something like cutting this student's hair off, because obviously this is the way he wanted his hair. Um, should, should we should we speak about this culturally? Let's let's speak with his parents. Let's speak with um, another referee. Let's let's truly get the rules fashioned because again, the rule was was just that he put his hair inside of a cap, which he did have, and no one said right. anything. Not his parents, not his teammates, not his coach, not the community that was there to to represent this high school. No one said anything, and they have to know him as a person. They would understand that he's not his hair. It's it's like just because he wears locks doesn't mean that this is going to be harmful or or violate a rule or, or anything of that nature because he was within the condition of the rule still. So what more is there to him cutting off his hair for this referee than him wrestling? Because wrestling is just a sport, yeah. just the way football and basketball are. And we have people in both uh, markets of football and basketball who have locks that are way longer than his, you know, almost down to their midsection. So what are we saying? Are we, are we, trying to justify that locks aren't needed in the world and in, in instances where we can control a person because they're just fine in, in sports. They're just fine in certain right. areas. They're just fine if you're a CEO and you own your own company. But for the most part, this hairstyle hasn't become that offensive. And when did it become that offensive? Because it's just the way our hair grows. We don't knock any other ethnicity for how their hair grows, except that with the exception of black people or maybe biracial kids, their hair is going to be curly or extra curly. But but if it's not curly or extra curly, then that means that it's the best hair to be had. So should we still wear wigs? Do we have to you know, wear weaves? Do we have to, you know, always have haircuts? Like, why do we only have to live by this conditioning of hair? No one cared about, mm. well, people did really care about afros in the 70s. That That was a like, you know, people look at it now like, oh, man, froze are so beautiful. Not just black people, but people people in general. But it was a yeah. stigma back then. That was for a point, you know, that we can let our hair grow and it grows out this way naturally. Um, but even with locks, if you there are some uh, homeless people here that they sleep on the street so much um, without because there's nothing that can be done to the hair. It mats and it becomes in the form of locks. But 
That's not right. we we take care of our hair just like we take care of the rest of our bodies, just like anybody else would. Just in a form of locks. We want that because it has a cultural appreciation to it that, you know, right. just comes along with us. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I wish more people would have got up in arms about what was going on there before that referee decided to have his way. And that's it for today's episode of Speaking of Racism. Tune in next week as the conversation with Noah continues.